I got too lazy to move this whole mic stand over. So I'm going to do it on this side. There. Situate myself, get comfortable for a second. Good morning, everybody. Everything's going to be on the left side. I'm like driving a car in Europe right now. This is weird. I want to start off with a question of just asking you simply, what do you want? (laughs) Fill in the blank, right? How many choices do I have? We want some conditions. Like, do I get three wishes and do I have to ask for the, on the last wish to have unlimited wishes? What's the deal here? Uh, after communion this morning, what I want is more bread. That stuff's fantastic. I'm just being honest. I know it's, you know, we're supposed to keep things holy, but I mean, that's really good. And, and, um, uh, Sonia Ballou, uh, she was telling me this morning as they were putting stuff out, she goes, Oh, we actually made, we accidentally made the pieces of bread so big. And I said, is that a bad thing? Like that's probably the smartest thing we've ever done for church growth strategy is make the communion bread just a little bit bigger because it stays with us longer. Anyway, the question could easily be, what do you want? We, uh, I had somebody ask me this when I was uh, younger in my years and stuff. If the Lord just came to you and says, what can I do for you? What would be your answer to him? And, you know, to be honest, I, I pondered uh, and I struggled with that because um, I, I feel as though I want a ton of things. So it's hard to narrow down to if, if it was like, you know, you get one request, what's it going to be? We know Solomon's re, uh, answer to that question was wisdom. And the Lord said, okay, because you didn't ask for wealth and fame and everything, I'm going to give you the other things because you asked for what's most in line with my heart. And so the other things came for Solomon. So I, I figured that out as a teenager. I'm like, Lord, I want wisdom. <laughs> Bring the other stuff, you know? He gave me neither. Anyway, um, but uh, so we could easily ask the question, what do you want? And we could, if we took some time, we could answer that. The, the, the challenge that we have as believers is what do we do with the answer? Once we've identified what we want, the voices outside, what we would call culture or the world say, so once you've identified it, go get it. The, you know, the world's your oyster and you, you, you deserve it. The, the ultimate thing is to be true to yourself. If you've identified your desire, go get it. Now, on the other hand, the cross calls us to understand that those desires, those intents, those motivations could be wayward and most often are. Though they, we've discussed they come from a good place. They come from a place of what God created us to want and need. But because of sin, we distort it and we, we want it too badly. The, co- the cross calls us to bring those things to the Lord. Not to just dismiss them. Oh, you want to be happy? You can forget that. That isn't the point. The point is, how badly do we want those things? And what would we be willing to sacrifice in order to have them? The world says, hold nothing back from yourself. You deserve it just by your mere existence. The cross says something else. The reality is, is that you and I are always motivated, even though we can't always pinpoint the thing we want. If someone were to say to me, what do you want? And I have a tough time coming up with the answer. The point is, I did wake up this morning being fueled and motivated by certain things. Whether or not I thought about it or not, I have been. It's ironic this week as I was coming in to, you know, work on this message about our motivations in life, I had none of it. 
I had no motivation to write a message on motivation. And that's when the truth started sinking into me a little bit. That I was still motivated, but just not motivated towards the things that I knew I should be doing. I was motivated for a different kingdom. I was motivated for the things that Brent felt he deserved, needed, and wanted. So motivation is always with us, sometimes in the positive and sometimes in the negative. But we're always motivated. Now, what cultural liberalism will tell us is it demands to only be judged on the intents of our actions, not the actions themselves. I I don't want you to hold me accountable for the outcome. I just want you to know that what I intended was something entirely different. So let's just all make each other feel good and let's move on. So as long as you and I mean well, then we get a pass. In other words, is what that culture is saying to us. But the rescue of heaven beyond the forgiveness of our sins, which is, of course, the, the biggest thing. The rescue of heaven is the arresting of the motivations that we have and reconciling those motivations and those desires to the heart of God. That's, well, that's what the gospel brings us. That's what the power of the cross brings us is finally a place that we can take all of these things that seem to get us in trouble, that make us run down dead ends, and finally surrender those to the one who loves me, cares for me. And the more we turn those motivations over to the one who knows us and died for us, the more peace we will find. So what Paul is going to do in our text this morning in 2 Corinthians 5 is he's going to double down on a statement that he made for us just a few verses before. We we talked about this a few weeks back. In verse 9 where he said, my ambition or my aim or my goal is to please God. That's what wakes Paul up in the morning. That's what keeps him going till late in the evening. That's the thing that fuels Paul's passion. So he's going to double down on this statement in our text this morning by revealing two very specific motivations in his life. And it's my, it's my, my heart's call for you this morning that you adopt these same two motivations because I believe that they answer all the other things. In other words, if we reorient our lives towards what Paul is trying to teach us in this text, all the other things filter. It doesn't mean that our lives will be perfect. It doesn't mean that we won't struggle. But what it means is the perspective of those things, the hope that is found in the midst of those things, it all starts to align based on these two motivations. They're quite basic and they're not new. That's basically what my middle name is. Brent, not basic, not new, small. So I have a tendency to state the obvious. And, um, and, and I think that that's okay. I think repetition sometimes and clarity, uh, helps us in our walk with the Lord. There's a lot of confusion, chaos, and inconsistency out in our world. So sometimes we just need things boiled down for us, made very, very clear for us to wrap our heads around for a framework to then expand on. So I think Paul's first call to us would be to find the fear of God. We're going to pick up on a small statement he makes in the beginning of verse 11. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 11, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. We might look at that and say, so one of Paul's motivations is he goes out to persuade others. No, that's, that's the result of Paul's motivation. That's his action that comes from the little statement he makes of knowing the fear of the Lord. So If we're being honest, we have very weird and limited perspective on what it means to be afraid today. We have uh, many of us that have been raised to not express any fear, that it's a great sign of weakness to even say that you're afraid of anything. And, And then there's people on the other end of the spectrum who can't seem to get out from under it. 
who are controlled and, and ruled and manipulated by a very obvious fear. One that people around you even say, that person's panicking. Their knees are knocking. They're, they're really scared. So we, we often have two uh, extremes of these things. I, I can't admit, admit it because I'm tough. I'm not afraid of anything. Nothing shakes me. To I can't get bold about a single thing. And then a lot of things in between. So Paul is saying that we should know the fear of God, and that comes in a little bit obtrusive, uh, intrusive to us because we're we're thinking, well, we're not supposed to fear, or we're already plagued with enough fear. Why would he keep piling it on us? So some of us this morning need to be humbled by the fact that we're all freaked out by something. We're all scared of something. Even the biggest and strongest amongst us are afraid of something. Not that I'm the biggest and strongest, but... When my wife freaked out because a really ugly, nasty spider came out of her drawer the other day, the only reason why I didn't act like her is because she was watching. (laughs) Eight legs are not supposed to do their own thing independently. I don't care. It's just creepy and wrong. Spiders are the worst thing ever created. They're just vile. And that little guy was fast. I say little. I mean, he was, you know, a little hairy. I mean, you could see the definition on him. He's that big, you know? trying to chase him and he keeps getting away. I'm like, he's going to eat me. I know he's going to eat me. I'm going to miss with this. My, my paper towel wad is this big. So I don't want to hear anything when I crunch him up. Ooh, I wouldn't eat for a week and he's just running away and everything. But, but you know, I can't admit to my wife that I'm just as scared as she is. Cause I'm her protector. You know, she knows, she knows the truth. She doesn't stop asking me, even though she knows she's the one that had a tarantula on her shoulder in Florida, after they moved down there, it was in one of the moving boxes. It wasn't at a zoo. There was nobody telling her, don't worry, it's safe. She just looked down and this spider had come off the drapes and was landing on her. Anyway, so I think, you know, she can handle a smaller one. Take the pressure off of me a little bit. What Paul is talking about for us to know the fear of the Lord is more than just terror. There's an element of our fear of the Lord that is terrifying. And I think that's an element that we can't too quickly dismiss. But Paul is talking about more than terror. He says in the next little phrase of verse 11, he says, but what we are is known to God. So in one phrase, he's saying, I, I, I fear the Lord. Remember, he told us a few verses back that it's my ambition and my aim to please God and your, yours better be too because one day we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is an element of terror. There is an element of fear. There is an element of being afraid of an outcome that Paul isn't trying to dismiss. Yet at the other hand, he's saying, but what we are is known to God. Remember last uh, last time we talked about this, I had said that Paul knew that the judgment seat was coming, but he wasn't that worked up about it anymore because Paul used to be Saul and Paul knows what Saul used to do. He lived a life for himself, built his own kingdom. When Jesus intercepted him and arrested him for, for the cause of the kingdom, Paul became, Paul was born in Christ and he said, ever since then, my motivation, my aim has been to please God. I'm piling upon pile upon pile of, of God's glory by my efforts. So I'm not really that concerned about it. So Paul is saying he's not, his knees aren't knocking at the thought of the fear of God. He's saying what I am is known to God. He gets it. He knows who I am. I, I keep that in check with him every day, every moment of every day. 
It's not an arrogance. It's not a confidence. I got this. I'm, I'm, I'm a gift to God. None of that sort of thing. He says, I'm just so focused on what I'm doing. I don't really have any doubt. Wouldn't that be a beautiful place to be? You know, so often when we have our doubts about, am I in the faith? Do I really believe this is real? We can usually line it up to the amount of motivation and effort we have for the kingdom. That as that wanes off, as that, as that backs off, we can start to go, well, no wonder why I'm starting to doubt. Now, fortunately, the grace of God covers all of that and leads his children to something better. And that's what we're talking about this morning. I want to put up a chart um, that uh, I hope will make some sense here this morning, because this is uh, the, the escalation, if you will, of where I believe that we are or should be with our fear of the Lord. It starts for for all of us or should start with all of us in this in this lower left area of terror and dread and trembling when we encounter the path the, the the power and the strength of god if we were to ever see it face to face which is what we hear about in the scriptures all the time when he reveals himself when even an angel comes and this isn't even god himself when an angel appears they hit the ground terrified don't kill me when we encounter the strength, the might, the majesty of God, there is a, an undoing of our core. Because we're, we're, we're not only seeing the majesty of God, but we're not used to this thing called the spirit world. And so it, it shakes everything that we thought we believed. And so there is a place where our fear starts as a terror or a dread or a trembling. And at some point... We start to take inventory of that power and that might. At some point, we start to understand that who is behind that really is all powerful. And we start to become astonished in that. We start to be in awe of the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of God. This is, if I could pinpoint an area where, where my heart is heaviest for the church of Jesus Christ is that we have lost our astonishment, our awe, which leads to reverence. And it's not a call for greater, freakier, more miraculous kinds of things. It's find our awe in the person that God already is and to understand what he's capable of, what he's already done by being raised from the dead, by forgiving our sins. I mean, can you imagine if our jaws were dropped all the time because of God's great, great glory? It's difficult sometimes for us to, to wrap our heads around what this awe would look like in this tiny little scene in the Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Chronicles of Narnia series, jumps out at me. And I, I don't know if you would recall this scene or not. It's very, very quick. The camera moves on, but I think the director just found something and emphasized it, and it really kind of makes me a little emotional every time I think about it. So uh, the Jadis is the white witch. She is the supreme enemy of... Uh, Aslan the lion. Aslan, of course, is on the move, and he is uh, orchestrating and conducting the events to uh, win his uh, people back to him and to defeat Jadis. And so if you know the story, you know that its roots that C.S. Lewis, a profound thinking Christian, uh, wrote this story intentionally to be completely um, an allegory of the story of Jesus Christ and on the redemption of his people to him. So Aslan the lion is the figure of Jesus where Jadis in so many ways represents the efforts and the, and the, and the, and the, uh, the scheming of Satan, the enemy. And she is opposing him through the, the whole story until it finally starts to climax at a battle on these open fields. 
and Jadis has her entire army being led and Aslan has his and, and the big clash happens. It's this amazing scene. This epic battle is taking place. And she has, like I said, she has tried to undo him from the beginning. She's not unaware of who he is. But then when they finally grapple it up, when Aslan has had enough of her and he comes flying off from the side and plants her on the ground, he is on top of her and she looks up and this is the look on her face. She is evil, she's wicked, and she has no sentiment or, or, or any ounce of loyalty to Aslan the lion. But the look on her face, there's a, this is brilliantly acted, I think, and, and it's a, sm- a slight smirk. You see it a little bit more in the video, and her eyes are wide open. She knows it's her end, but she takes in the power and the beauty and the majesty of the one who's about to devour her. You can see she comes to terms with it in a split second, like, you are awesome. Now, it doesn't mean that she surrendered her life to him or any of that. So she was about to get devoured, but she just took in the, she moved from terror to, to dread and trembling to astonishment and awe. And in a sense, reverence for the power of this lion about ready to devour her. And the scene is over. You see, this is the, the privilege that you and I have as children of the living God as we get to take in the awe and to be astonished with him without the fear of being devoured. All will come to that place. All will see him as he is. So let's bring this chart back up, if you would, please. Once we move through astonishment and awe and reverence, we continue to grow forward in our devotion We start to dedicate parts of our lives, our hearts, our resources to him. We begin to trust him that he's going to look after us, provide for us. He's always got our best interest for his glory at heart, which is an expression of worship. So often we reduce worship to the half an hour, 45 minutes of music that we play on a Sunday morning, but, but our lives directed towards uh, reverencing the, the awesomeness of God laying our lives down for him, trusting for the outcome and walking in that, that is a life of worship. That's what the fear of the Lord becomes as it's seen through, as it's realized. Now, if we are stuck on only seeing the holy justice of God, if we're going to stay down in this bottom left as so many like religious organizations or cults like to do, if if we can just convince you that God's always going to squash you like a bug, we can create all kinds of rules and frustrations and things so that you stay stuck in terror and dread. But the love of Jesus Christ, the, the rescue of the gospel brings us beyond that. We still acknowledge that everything on this chart is okay for us to fear and to feel with the Lord. It's not like we leave terror behind. It just gets put in perspective. I always want to be terrified of the awesome power of God. I don't ever want to get to where I'm comfortable that he has to remind me. I got some muscles up here. I want to respect that and not ever test that. We only, if we only see the holy justice of God, what we have a tendency to do is we hide, we pull away. I can't face him. He'd never be happy with me. He'd never forgive me if he knew what I did. When we know his holy justice and his holy love, which we'll talk about here going forward, we start to draw near to him even while we submit to him. 
This is part of where our, even our Christian culture is losing its way. We're being told to draw near to him. You can trust him. He loves you and he cares for you personally. And he does. But in the absence of reverence and, and fear and, and other things, we have a tendency to treat him too casually. We can just walk in, kind of lay down our demands. If you can't do it, then I'll figure out a way to do it kind of, kind of attitude. But a proper fear of the Lord and reverence and appreciation for all these things keeps this in perspective. You see, this is more than just our knees knocking. When Paul says, because I know the fear of the Lord, he knows all stages of this and walks confidently in them. This is more than a human endeavor. This is more than our human perspective can often comprehend. So let's go back to the beginning of verse 11 and let's, let's go through this, put it in a little bit more context and move a few verses ahead. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. I hope it's known to your conscience too. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Let's break this down just a little bit. We're going to look at some phrases that he says, and we're going to talk about what's on the other side of this here. He says, it's not that we're commending ourselves to you. This is interesting phrase for them to hear. He says uh, at the beginning, he says, we're not trying to persuade you. I'm sorry. He says, we're persuading men. But what he said in first Corinthians is he says, I'm not going to persuade you with lofty speech and rhetoric and all the other things that your culture appreciates for good argumentation. I'm not coming to try to convince you with tricks is what he's saying. So I'm not going to work hard to persuade you. Then on the other side of his mouth, he says, because I fear God, I'm going to persuade men. You see what Paul has done here is he's established that all of the work of the, of the Lord is done by the spirit and not by the craftiness of God's people. We need to keep that in mind. We are so tempted to get crafty, aren't we? We're so tempted to manipulate the circumstances. Paul has already established his first time out with the Corinthians. I don't need to do that. I don't need to talk up God. He's God. I don't need to convince you. But because I fear him, I'm not going to get lazy about that. Because I fear him, I'm still going to work to to get into the hearts and the minds of other people and see what are your hangups? What don't you understand about God? I don't mind and I will spend my life persuading others. He says, it's not because I'm trying to commend myself to you. If I, if I said I didn't care what they think so much about that, why would I worry about you guys? The proof is in the spirit. This is what he's been laying out for us all in the beginning of 2 Corinthians. It's not in my speech. It's not in my works or any of those kinds of things. We're not commending ourselves. I don't have to do that. He says, but what I'm giving you is the opportunity to boast to others, which is a weird statement. We'd say, well, that sounds arrogant. You're not supposed to boast. So really what he's saying is since you want me to boast, I'm not going to do it. But if you want to boast so badly, go boast to the people that are shallow. Go boast to the people that, that do not understand the reason why the, the apostle Paul has to uh, suffer shipwreck and abandonment and stoning and all those kinds of things. If you want something to brag about, go brag about the things that God is doing in the life of someone that they wouldn't understand. Go talk to the people, as the Greek says, that look at the face and not the heart. And go persuade them with all the information I'm giving you. It's not because I need you guys to accept me. I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is in this, but they don't get it. And they're looking at all the wrong things. 
So go and persuade them. Go go stand up to them. And, and then he says a, a couple of strange statements. He says, if we're beside ourselves, which means crazy, if we're crazy, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, which is what we would expect it to mean, then it's for you. Well, it sounds a little weird. And there's a lot, as you would expect, there's a lot of different opinion on what this really means. Sometimes Paul says things that are a little bit confusing or have multiple ways it could go. And so um, I looked at all those things. A lot of them made a lot of sense, and I'm fine with all of them. But I just prefer a, a, a more direct reading of the passage for the point that we're on and see if this helps us out at all. Paul is making the point that we don't have to work too hard to impress other people by the things that we do, the things that we say. So he's saying, if that doesn't go anywhere and all we're labeled at, all, if all that Paul is labeled at is just a nut because he does speak in the tongues of angels, because he is caught up to another heaven, because he is uh, suffering shipwreck, abandonment and persecution and all those kinds of things, he's a nut, he's crazy. If that's as far as it goes, God still gets the glory. He sees me. He knows who I am. So, so that's for him. But if for some reason this actually takes hold and people start to go, you know what? There's a lot of credibility. I, I admire that kind of tenacity. I admire that endurance. You know, I, I, I think that that says a lot about somebody's character. Man, the God of heaven must really be with this guy to keep him going. He says, if I'm seen as my, in my right mind, and there's credibility in that, then you can use that. That's for you. It will help the case of the church if we have credible people who are who are showing the light of Christ. I think both of those things make some sense to me. There's other angles that you can study and look into. A lot of them emphasize more of of the um, the application of the sign gifts of the Spirit and those sorts of things, which I'm not um, opposed to that application of that passage. But I think that in context of this, Uh, He's explaining reputation and usefulness of a testimony. So he says that we should know the fear of God. Second motivation in Paul's life, I would say, is to be controlled by love. He says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, simply put, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, I know I'm a broken record when I'm talking about what culture puts on us and thinks out there, but I know that's where you live. You're not all insulated and isolated from the world as uh, the pastors here are for the most part, where the challenges I have hopefully aren't whether or not I'm going to get workplace persecution for my faith. Let's hope not. If so, we probably have to have some deeper conversations. You folks face it every single day, whether it's in the office, whether it's at home in an unequally yoked situation where you don't have other believers under your roof, maybe your circle of friends, any of those kinds of things. So the reason why I'm a broken record to always point out the difference in how culture would think about these things is because I think it's necessary for us to wrestle with. Do I believe this or am I just parroting it because the pastor at church said this? Paul said, the love of Christ controls us. Culture says nothing should control you. The greatest love you can find is the love for who? Yourself. Paul is saying the love of Christ. 
as the love of Christ has moved into my life, has, has controlled me, because see, this is what makes the, the, the faith of, uh, the Christian faith unique, is that Jesus moves in. He changes our very nature. He, he begins to move out of us instead of just give us a, a healthy example to imitate. And so Paul is saying that as this love moves in, as it becomes this real change and transformation in my life and in my heart, I'm controlled by it. I'm constrained by it. Culture says, do not be controlled, constrained by anything. Be free, free, free. But have they found freedom? Do you see a society out there any freer than before? Maybe temporarily. It's fun to run off the rails for a little bit. But then we have a spike in um, psychotherapy and medications, hospitalization, suicides, all that kind of thing. That isn't the answer that is fulfilling its promise. Paul says the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. And again, a bit of a strange way of saying this. He says that one has died for all. Therefore, all of us who are represented by Jesus, who have, who have, in a sense, placed our sins on him and he carried them to the cross because he died for us. We all died with him is the way that I think Paul is trying to say this. And even though it's a little bit strange in the language. That as one died for all, therefore, all have died. You see, we don't determine or define who we are or what we do. We give our lives to Christ. He moves in. There's a, an element of control that we're supposed to just surrender. Paul says, I'm okay with that. Why? Because I fear him. He used to make me tremble and I'm scared. And every once in a while, I'm reminded of his strength and majesty, but I've been, I've been arrested by his grace, his forgiveness. I can trust that. I don't want to control me. I didn't, I didn't come up with that on my own. I failed at that. So he says in verse 15, he says, and he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, which is freedom. The, 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 the imprisonment is to live for ourselves. That's the thing that we just talked about is an empty promise that might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. And was raised. You see, love controls us. Love with a capital L, it has a name, who's Jesus, as we sing about. Love frees us. We don't stay imprisoned to the deceitfulness of self-love that culture has been trying to get us to adopt forever and only leaving us empty. We know how to love ourselves very well, might I step out on a limb and say. You might say, well, I don't think that's true because I'm full of shame and regret and everything. That's different than not loving yourself enough. And the Lord wants to heal that too. And he has grace for that. If you lay your lives down to the, to the foot of the cross and you ask for his forgiveness and he will make you new. We're going to discover this in the next passage coming up. That all who are in Christ are new creations. That isn't loving yourself more selfishness damages us internally. We feel it. We walk around with it. We feel frustrated by it. I had a me day and I don't feel any better the next day. Selflessness brings a strange rejuvenation, does it not? We can spend ourselves a lot as we give ourselves to other people. It's strange where the energy comes from, where the motivation comes from, yet it is supplied. Love frees us. Love destroys terror. First John chapter four, verse 18. The Bible says there is no fear in love, 
but perfect love casts out fear. You're like, okay, finally we got to that verse. I've been hung up on this. You said, you said, uh, we're supposed to love and we're supposed to hang on to fear, but perfect love casts out fear, gets rid of it. Most of the songs I heard uh, uh, on worship radio this morning, great songs, but as, because I'm fine tuned to this discussion now, because we're talking about it this week, you know, I heard them saying, you know, we're not supposed to fear anymore and that kind of thing. So I'm going, okay, what do we hear when we, uh, what do we process when we hear that kind of thing? Because even scripture is saying there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Well, John continues this, the thought for us for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected or matured in love. You see, this is where I think Paul is going with when he says, I, my knees aren't knocking at the thought of the judgment seat of Christ anymore. Because I've, I've found his love. I have walked in his forgiveness and I, and I don't abuse his grace. So because of that, I've grown up in my love. I've, I've matured in my love. I give my life for you, Corinthians, he's saying. I spend it out. I'm poured out just like a, a, a drink offering. Just pour it out, pour it out. That is the calling of my life is to be spent and I'm happy to do it because now I don't fear things anymore. You see, that's the kind of fear that we're supposed to let love cast out is looking around the corner, checking under the bed. What's going to get me? What's going to get me? You see, as fear grows, it turns into trust and worship. The fear of God, that is. Loving what God loves removes the fears that the things in life are going to crush us. So we've talked about what fear is, what love is, but we haven't really talked about exactly what they do. So let's wrap this up with a few minutes of just some ap- uh, practical application on what do, what do these things produce in our life. Paul is saying that because I fear the Lord, I'm willing to persuade others. You could also say that he's just willing to give himself as outreach is what we would call it in our church. That he's willing to testify of the goodness and the grace of God to other people. He's not one of these people that says, well, my religion's very personal. It's very private to me because it means so much. Like somehow that makes it more special is that I don't want to talk to you about it. He says, no, because of this, I'm willing to spread this out. I want the fame of God. Remember what he said uh, in the passage before where he said, if this continues to happen, more and more glory will abound, more and more praise for God as more and more people are added to the kingdom. He cared about this. So the fear of the Lord will produce in us speaking, talking. Skilled, compassionate words are important. And some of us in our group have, in our groups have studied, you know, how do we defend the faith? How do we speak truth? How do we have an answer for the hope that lies within us? All those things are good, but nothing uh, improves your speech about the thing that's going on in your life than the change in your life. People are so naturally willing to talk about the things that are going on in their life. If, the, if it's the Lord that's going on in your life, it spills out. You turn into an evangelist without even realizing it. Uh, my friend Jeff Dion, our director of men's ministries here, gave me a book by Pat Morley called The Christian Man. It took me a while to get back to it or to get into it. And when I did uh, this last week, I couldn't stop reading it. Men, if you're looking for a practical uh, book that isn't just all how-tos, 
but just puts things in perspective about the Christian life and how they relate to us as men. I mean, it's a very profound and helpful book full of wisdom and everything. So, Jeff, next time you talk to Pat, tell him I want a cut of the, uh, of the um, profits for promoting it. But uh, I was reading it, and a couple of major themes jumped out at me. And one of the things that he said, which I thought was profound but extremely simple and helpful for me because I am not the boldest evangelist out on the street corner. He said evangelism is simply taking someone as far as they want to go toward Jesus at that particular moment. You see, we we make it like our one conversation with somebody about what God wants them to know has to cover everything from the foundations of the earth to when they bow their head, close their eyes, pray a prayer, a sinner's prayer, and then we tell them about all the benefits of of, uh, being promised heaven one day when they die. That that what I liked about this was that it's simply taking someone towards Jesus. There is direction and momentum to it, but as far as they're ready to go at that particular time. When we trust the Lord and we walk in that trust, we can do that. Talk is a part of the persuasion of people, but it isn't isolated. It isn't just our words. In fact, perhaps more importantly, I think more than perhaps, is our walk or our conduct. So that we're not just caught up in apologetics, which is the defense of the faith, which is very important to know the answers. We talked about some of them a few weeks back but also to be able to invest our lives, to spill our lives over for the needs of others, to be available, uh, uh, to have an available compassion, to have an arrested practice. I've used that word arrested several times this morning, but it, it's, it's, I'm using it similar to how Paul says about control, that because I love you so much, I'm willing for my world to shrink a little bit to my life and my perceived freedoms to be controlled a little bit by the love that I have for you as I give that over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives should be so persuasive to those around us that they know who we belong to. I'm going to jump back into Pat Morley's book, The Christian Man. He said this, he said somewhere in the opening of the book, the world is no longer asking what is true. Have you found that? We still believe in the truth. We know that the truth informs us. The truth sets us free, as Jesus says. But the world isn't asking what's true. Their world's asking what's real. And I stopped dead in my tracks because it's so profound. Because so many people do not care what we're learning about in church. They want to see what we're doing with it out there. If the truth we claim to believe doesn't even appear to be real in our lives... People will not be persuaded towards this truth. So the, the obvious question would be in our, in our conduct and in our character, in our motivations, are we different in the ways that we handle our money as people of God? Are we different in the ways that we approach sex? Are we different in the ways that we um, strive at work and work hard? Or to seek, whether we seek promotion or, or prestige or any of those things, are we different in the way that we um, raise our families, love our spouses? Are we different in the way that uh, we don't let life be controlled by our emotions or our circumstances, but instead seek to let the Holy Spirit control those things in our life? Are we different? Does it show up differently? That's what the fear of the Lord can produce in our lives. 
as does the love of Christ, because we, we start to live for him on behalf of others. And this is the great thing that the Lord gives us. As we strive to learn our fear in him, it's balanced out by our love of him. That that love comes in and, and causes us not to be lost in dread and terror, stuck in that lower part of the, of the slide where we, we can't even move because we're so afraid he'll be unhappy with us. But as the love of Christ comes and forgives us of our sins and we learn to forgive others and show them that grace, we begin to have balance in our life and purpose. You know, the two things that everyone keeps saying they want, balance and purpose. Because loving others, I mean, loving ourselves becomes this endless pursuit as we've discussed. But loving others for Christ makes an immediate impact in our hearts, in our affect, and also in the lives of people around us. So a couple last comments or thoughts and we'll be done. We all fear and love lesser things because we fear not having safety or security we love lesser things that promise those things and end up not coming through because we fear not being popular or accepted we we love the things that seem to promise that they'll give us those things even when they don't come through we fear not being happy in life so we pursue lots of things that make us feel happy in the moment even though they don't come through Being motivated by a higher fear of the Lord, which as we've discussed is worship, and a higher love for Christ, which is seen in sacrificing our lives for others, replaces all of our other empty pursuits. So by the grace of God, we can begin to replace our selfish drives, our motivations that we might not even be aware of there for the hunger of living in God's kingdom. What you and I will find is greater security, We'll find greater peace. We will have elements of leadership even in our lives because people will see that we're not as rattled by the things around us and they will look to the source of the answers that you're walking in. Others are going to find hope in your conviction of character. Let's stand together and let's close our time in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you, God, for what you've done this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for your people. I thank you, Lord, that they are faithful to you to want to continue to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, even while they beat up all the elements of the enemy out in the world. I pray that you would bless them with your grace, that you would give them endurance this morning. All the unique circumstances that walk through these doors this morning, God, most of them have to go back to the same circumstances. So Lord, rather than us spending all of our time asking you to change our circumstances, would you please change our hearts? Would you please change the things that we're asking for? Help us, Lord, to fear the God who can control all of our circumstances, who can eliminate all of our enemies and foes. Help us to worship you, Lord, and let it lead us to loving others. In Jesus' name, amen.